0: we go. Good morning. Before we uh, open our Bibles this morning, I want to just bring you a greeting from Gospel Fellowship Community Church. I try to do that every time when I'm invited to come down. Just want to let you know that we're praying for you as a church. We're praying for Gracious Cross specifically as a church. Um, we do that on a weekly basis. We're praying uh, specifically that God would strengthen you. Those are some of the specifics that, that uh he would equip you for the work that he's called you to, and that uh, it's no small thing when we say that we're praying for you. You know, sometimes it's kind of a throw-off, it's, but it's not that way. It's a, we really do pray for you on a, on a weekly basis, and more often than that. So, and thank you for praying for us. We appreciate that. Um, so I also want to thank Brian for allowing me to preach today, and for Greg for giving me the opportunity and assigning a text to me to preach today. And uh, today we're in 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 7 through 12. And uh, would you stand with me as we read the Word of God this morning? The Apostle Paul writes this, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy And righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, would you... Take these words and, and work them deep into our hearts. As Brian prayed, protect me from saying anything that would be an error or would be wrong. Or get, get us distracted from the truth of the gospel this morning. And give us attentive ears to your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks ago, Greg uh, Harris preached from the first six verses of chapter 2. The title of his sermon was The Marks of a Faithful Minister. Of the gospel. He reminded you in that sermon that chapter one dealt with the marks of a true Christian and an elect child of God and who that is and what that looks like. And then when he moved into chapter two, he listed for you six marks of a faithful minister of the gospel. I suppose I could right now hand out a pop quiz and have you give me those six things, but there's been two weeks in between and sometimes we forget things. And so perhaps it's best for me just to list them out for you by way of reminder so that we can kind of track with where he was and where we're going today. After all, repetition's a good thing, right? It is a good thing. Six marks of a faithful minister of the gospel. He said first that a faithful minister of the gospel preaches the word of God with power, preaches the word of God with power. A faithful minister is committed to God's word, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, preaches that word to a, to a congregation week after week. And preaches the gospel to himself before he preaches it to you. So preaches the word of God with power. Second thing, committed to the truth of God. Committed to the truth of God. There are many people out there who want to define truth in their own terms And a faithful minister always takes you back to the word of God and says, this is true north. This is is the truth. This is what we believe. This is where we're headed. and This is why we're heading the direction we're headed. So a faithful minister is committed to the truth of God. Third thing, a, a faithful minister is committed to living a life of sexual purity. Committed to a life of living a life of sexual purity. The culture back then and the culture here now would distract a minister from preaching the truth of the word of God and be distracted with fantasy and things like that. And and a faithful minister of the gospel will have nothing of that. He will actually, I'll get to that in a second, but he'll surround himself with other men who keep him focused on the truth of the gospel and not get sucked into the the sexuality and the sensuality of our culture. But so uh, he's committed to living a life of sexual purity Fourth, he's obedient to the will of God by being ordained to the ministry. There are other men that come alongside, examine, look at him, and, and make sure that, that when he's prepared to preach, he's going to preach the word of God and not just his own words. Very easy for ministers to, correct, to attract a crowd and never preach the word of God. And a minister that is ordained has been tested and proven that he his desire, first and foremost, is to preach the word of God accurately to his flock week after week. And so that ordination process happens. I'm so grateful for that. Fifth mark of a faithful minister of the gospel. He's accountable to God in all that he preaches. The word says that the minister is especially accountable for what he says. You know, he's going to be judged, He's going to, for, for what he says. How What he says cares for a flock. And so he is accountable to God in all that he preaches. We okay? That's fine. Just adjust me as you will. <laughs> accountable to, I, we are? Okay, that might be me. Okay. Accountable to God in all that he preaches. And the sixth thing, a faithful minister is seeking only to please God. If he tries to preach to what you would like to hear, what tickles your ears or what um, perhaps draws a crowd, his, his audience is, is to God. He's accountable first and foremost there, like he says in point five, but also he seeks only to please God. And when he does that, what happens? The congregation's blessed, right? When, that's, when, when he faithfully does that, a congregation is blessed. It's, a, it's what will happen. So these six qualities mark the life of any faithful minister of the gospel. It's what this church will be looking for as you look for a minister to to shepherd this flock. You're going to be looking for somebody with those six qualities and others as that pastor shepherds. I won't re-preach his sermon, but I will highlight a couple of things that stood out to me as I listened to your message, Greg, from a couple of weeks ago. Greg said, the key to the Christian life is the lordship of Jesus Christ. He went on and said, we live to please God. No one else is Lord but Jesus. We live the Christian life regarding the, about the lordship of Jesus Christ. There's no area of our lives that should escape his lordship. No area. Every area of our lives, whether it's at home, whether it's at church, And vocationally, no area of of your life or mine should escape his lordship. This is true of a minister of the gospel and each member of the local church. Jesus must be Lord in your life and in the life of this church. Everything else falls under that. Everything else falls under that. We live first and foremost to please God. And then one final quote from his sermon. We show our love for God by the way we love and care for one another. As he directs on his behalf. And he said, We do this as unto the Lord. We show our love for God by the way we love and care for one another. I enjoyed that being part of your pre service prayer listening to you guys pray how you're loving and caring for each other and others in the area as you guys pray together. That was a real blessing to me this morning to be part of that. In the first six verses of chapter two, you could probably stamp the word faithful steward right over those six points that he brought out. Paul and his ministry team were faithful stewards of the gospel in planting that church Uh, As we move into verses 7 to 12, the emphasis shifts. He moves from um, marks of a faithful minister of the gospel to the heart of a faithful minister of the gospel. What's the heart of a minister of the gospel look like? In our passage today, uh, a gentleness and a pastoral care um, for the church is on full display. Paul lived and worked among them. They could observe his heart, not just in his preaching, but in his life and his, in his vocation of tent making. So we're going to look at the text in two points and how a faithful minister of the gospel conducts himself in the church. And Paul draws out two images or two analogies um, from our outline, and that's what forms our outline this morning. And so, sorry, no three-point outline, only a two-point outline. The first point, like a loving mother. Like a loving mother. We'll see that in verses 7 to 8. And then, secondly, the second analogy as a concerned father in verses 9 through 12. So, first, like a loving mother. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. There's no doubt that the Apostle Paul was a man of authority and conviction, uh, read any of his letters and you see that. He, he was a man of, of conviction. But he always used that authority in love. This new church really sensed his tender care for them as he nurtured them. He, um, the analogy Paul draws upon is a mother nurturing and caring for her own children. Any parent knows that it takes time and energy to care for children. Paul could have just turned the care of these new Christians over to a babysitter, a nanny, and said, I'm moving on. I'm going to start a new church. You're in the care of this babysitter. He could have delegated the next phase of their Christian growth over to someone less important and less busy than him. Because you read, he's a busy man. Could have just done it. But he didn't do that. He did just the opposite. He, he made personal sacrifices and cared for them himself. You know, there's many good books out there that are written by godly men and women to teach us and tell us how to grow in godliness. And, and those books are not to be diminished in, in our walk with God. A lot of them are very important. Some of them are not worth reading, but a lot of them are very good books. We're, some of the men in our church are going through a book right now together called The Men We Need. The Men We Need, God's Purpose for the Manly Man... The Avid Indoorsman, or Any Man Willing to Show Up by Brant Hansen. He's not your typical manly man, plays the flute and the accordion, and he doesn't do CrossFit, but this man has some important things to say to men, and there's a group of seven or eight of us that are gathering once a week, and we're reading a chapter in this book, and then encouraging each other, and challenging each other in what we're reading, and it's it's good. So I don't want to say there are many good books out there, but what makes this book work is seven or eight men gathering together and encouraging each other and challenging each other with what we read, not just reading it and moving on. That's the important piece, that discipleship, that personal one-on-one discipleship of a person walking alongside of us, studying with us, encouraging us, cheering us on, gently correcting us is powerful and helpful in our walk of faith. In fact, we're all commanded to make disciples, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. So Paul didn't leave the care of this church. He planted to someone else. He stayed with them, and he discipled them. And we see, one of the things we see about him staying with them is that Paul was patient with them. Several of us here this morning are raising children or have raised children. How much patience does it require to know the heart of each of your children? We know the one size does not fit all, you know. With one child, you just give them the jaw, you give them the look. That's all it takes for that child to get back in line. Another one, it's that constant reminding and constant reminding for them to finally get it. For, for another, it's that timeout that says, you sit and think about it for a while, and then let's talk about it after you have a timeout. And for some, it's that loving spanking that has to be administered to get them back in line. One size does not fit all to, to reach that child's heart. We have two children, a son and a daughter. Our two children did not grow up instantly. It took patient parenting over many years, mostly patience on my part, wisdom on my wife's part. It took patient parenting on both of our parts. The the point is the Apostle Paul was patient with them, with this new church. He didn't expect instant spiritual growth and maturity, but he did expect growth over time. He did it. He was calling them to growth spiritually over time. So not only was Paul patient, with a new church, he also nourished them. He nourished them. Verse 7 can also be read, even as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, even as a nursing mother, instead of taking care of, cherishes her own children. When you read it that way, we see that a, a nursing mother imparts her own life to the child. That's exactly what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. You cannot be a nursing mother and turn your baby over to somebody else. It just doesn't work. The baby needs to be in your arms, close to your heart, to nourish and care for that child. We all know biology, that the nursing mother eats the food and transforms it into milk for the baby. And mature Christians... As mature Christians, we feed on the word of God, and then we share it. We nourish younger Christians in the faith so that they can grow. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes would desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. We want the milk of the word so that we can grow. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. We also know that a nursing child can, be, can become ill or have a reaction to something that the mother's eaten. I used this illustration with permission from my wife. I made sure that I did this before. Check this with her before I share it with you. And she said, okay. When her son was born, he's now almost 40. Um, maybe he was just a couple of weeks old, maybe a month or two old. Um, my wife got a craving for chocolate. And some friends of ours, close friends of ours, came back from Switzerland and brought a nice big milk chocolate chocolate bar from Switzerland. And uh, she had the craving. And so she consumed a fair amount of it. I don't remember the exact amount. Might have been the whole bar. I don't know. It wasn't too long before our son was crying and upset, far more than normal baby crying. Matt experienced his first dose of caffeine through mama 's milk, and Lou connected the dots, started to cry, realizing that she had done this to her baby it was a natural reaction and if I remember it all correctly, it brought you to tears didn 't it? Uh, what she said less alert she says i 'm not going to do that again and she didn 't that 's the only time that I can remember that he ever got affected in an adverse way from caffeine, but that nourishment the mama takes in. The point, Paul was careful what he fed himself so that he could feed others. You and I need to take great care and concern over what we're consuming. The Christian who's feeding others must be careful not to feed on the wrong things himself. And that goes for all of us, not just a faithful minister, that goes for all of us. In addition to making sacrifices personally and not turning that day-to-day discipleship over to someone else and having great patience and giving nourishment to this young church, we see one more thing. Paul protected them. A mother also protects her child. Remember the account in 1 Kings 3, where King Solomon had to discern who the real mother was between the two women, where one child had died and the other one was alive. The desire to protect the child was how Solomon was able to discern who the real mother was. Next we see Paul was willing to not only give the gospel, but his own life for that church. To carry Paul's illustration of a nursing mother one step further before we move on, it's it's not easy to be a nursing mother. Never been one, but I heard that it's not easy to be a nursing mother. You know, there's an example in the Old Testament where Moses complained to God about having to care for this flock that was given to him. I should back up one point before we move on. Paul was affectionately desirous, it says in verse 8, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Our own selves. His own life. Now his illustration. The illustration from Numbers 11. Moses saying, did I conceive all these people? Did I begat them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom? As a guardian carries a nursing child to the land where you swore to their fathers, he's saying, I I want to be... I want to be a caring, nurturing father. He uses a, a mother figure like a nursing child for these kids. This is hard, he says. It's hard. It's hard to be a faithful minister of the gospel. You care about these people. Moses had a heart and a concern for the people. The people were actually, from this text, actually a burden on his heart, in a good way. A burden. Paul's heart as a pastor and minister of the gospel was to feed these new Christians the milk of the word so that they would mature and appreciate, in time, the meat of the word. So, we know that the heart of a pastor is not just to preach to you, but to walk with you. A faithful pastor, a faithful minister of the gospel, will not just preach to you, but he wants to walk with you. It's to carry the burdens with you, and together you and that faithful pastor takes those burdens to the cross. Paul's saying, I stayed with you. He said, I stayed with you. He loved them. He worked with his hands among them so as not to be a burden. His heart was for their growth in godliness. He wanted nothing to get in the way of that. So a faithful minister doesn't just preach. He also walks with you. Second point, a concerned father in verses 9 through 12. Paul was a spiritual father to these new believers, and Thessalonica, I'm, I'm sure he felt that way for many of the churches he planted, being a concerned father. This is how he spoke about the church he planted in Corinth, for even if you had 10,000 others to teach you about Christ, you have only one spiritual father, for I became your father in Christ Jesus when I preached the good news to you, when I preached the good news to you. When any new church is planted, it's the Spirit of God that uses the Word of God to establish and grow a church. It's the Spirit of God that uses the Word of God to establish and grow a church. Many in Thessalonica were born into the family of God because of his faithful preaching and and his ministry team and his life. It's the faithful teaching and preaching in the Word of God that established the Word. But a spiritual father a church doesn't just plant a church, he cares for it. Remember what Greg said, many from outside the church and maybe even from inside the church were coming against him and his ministry. There were satanic attacks that were attempting to undermine and discredit his teaching and his work among them. And we know that any true work of God will always experience satanic attack. Any true work of God will always do that. Satan will come against it, especially the leadership. That's where it happens a lot of times. So as Paul defends against this attack, he points out three duties or three responsibilities he had as the spiritual father of the church in Thessalonica. In verse 9, it talks about his work, his work. Verse 9 says, for you remember, brothers, our labor And toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. A father works to support his family. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, Adam was called to be a keeper of the garden. One of the first initial things in this book is he says, Adam neglected his responsibility to be a keeper of the garden. men were responsible to be keepers of the garden that God has assigned us to, and that's one of his basic premises to begin this book. It involved work to be a keeper of the garden. Good hard work, good hard work pre-fall, before the fall. The Christians in Philippi, while he was working hard in Thessalonica, had sent financial aid to Paul. Philippians 4, 15 to 16, as you know, he writes to the Philippians, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. But Paul still made tents and he still paid his own way. There were probably, I'm sure, some detractors inside and outside of the church that were saying that Paul was there to make money off of them. I mean, that's what other charlatans did. He was just another one of those. It was common in that day for a person to gather people around them. and They would travel around, gather a crowd, and make money off of what was said. The more eloquent you were, especially saw this in Corinth, the more eloquent you were, the more money you could make off of people. So they were accusing Paul of being just another one of those peddlers of words to make money for personal gain. Paul says, I'm going to have none of that. None of that at all. He paid his own way to not let anything get in the way of preaching and instructing in the word of God. He paid his own way. In fact, later on in 2 Thessalonians, you'll get to a passage uh, in chapter 3, where Paul's going to use this fact of him paying his own way to actually shame lazy Christians in the church. He's going to use that. He's going to say in Second Corinthians Thessalonians three, For you know what you ought that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted fruit from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night, so we would not be a burden to any of you. By inference, are you working hard, Thessalonians? Are you being lazy? That's what he's he's gonna say. Are you being lazy? Paul says, follow our example. He says, These accusations that come against us are false accusations. They're not true. In in verse nine, Paul uses the word labor and toil. Other translations say our struggles and hard work or toil and hardship. It couldn't have been easy to make tense and minister the word of God at the same time. It's no wonder, he said, I toiled day and night. We see this recorded in Acts 20, verse 31. Remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone day and night with tears. He toiled and he taught often with tears. That's pastoral care, people. Toiling day and night. With tears, with love, with concern for the flock. That's pastoral care. Why did he toil? He did it because he loved the believers individually, not just the church in Thessalonica, but he loved the believers in the church. He wanted to help them as much as possible. A heart of a faithful minister of the gospel wants to help and see the individual members of his flock grow and mature. As you look for a faithful minister for this flock, you want one who wants you to grow and mature, and he wants to walk alongside of you so that that will happen. Sometimes even to the point of tears, right? Amen. So now a second duty that Paul points out, says he walks in verse 10. His walk. You are witnesses, and God also How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Holy, righteous, and blameless. A father not only works to support his family, a father also must be a good example to his children. Paul calls on them as eyewitnesses. He says, you were eyewitnesses. You saw it. You are witnesses. As you have seen, as, as you saw a couple of weeks ago, is, is a theme that runs throughout the book. You are witnesses of my lifestyle, my exemplary lifestyle, he said. You're witnesses of it. None of the members of the church could accuse Paul of being a poor example. They daily observed him. I can imagine, Lord, Lou and I were talking about this passage on the way down here, and the ladies in her church had just gone through an inductive study of First Thessalonians, and so she's pretty first on it. I, if they had daily walked with Paul, I can imagine him picking up the hammer or the needle in the shop, somebody from the church being around him, hitting his thumb, sticking himself with a... What's his response when that happens? I think they would have seen probably a... Godly response to, you know, this hurts, but not with curse words. And in fact, he had an example. He could live out in front of them because they watched him at work, not just from the pulpit on Sunday. They daily observed him. Then he goes one step further in verse 10. He calls not only on them as witnesses, but he says, God is my witness also. He says, you are witnesses and God also. Paul wasn't afraid to call God his witness. You know why? Because God knew his heart. God knew his heart. God knew deep down. We see on the outside, we observe, you know, this guy's got it all together. God is my witness. God is my witness. He lived a dedicated life while caring for that church family. His outside actions, his service and his care for them revealed what was really going on deep down inside of his heart, where only God truly knows. To use another analogy, it was like an open book to them. Paul said he and his ministry partners lived holy lives. We lived holy lives. That literally means to carefully fulfill the duties God gives to a person. When you're called to live a holy life, you have a duty that God gives you. saw that back in chapter 1. Paul refers to that as a work of faith and a labor of love. The church was commended for their work of faith and labor of love, and Paul was fulfilling his calling, his labor of love, by working among them and living a holy life. They could observe his example, and the example of his ministry partners that were with him. He then writes that Paul and his team were righteous. What a great quality to have for a faithful minister of the gospel. Not only is he holy, but he's righteous. This speaks to integrity, to good character, to godly behavior. This is not the righteousness that we get at salvation. This is the practical righteousness that's worked out after salvation, that God works out in us as we yield to him. Paul speaks to this righteousness in Philippians 3, just after he calls himself, that passage where he says, I was a Hebrew, the Hebrews, and all that. He was in the upper crust of Jewish religious life. Then he says, Philippians 3, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. That I may know him. That's not just a know him at salvation. That's a know him daily knowing him. Knowing him and the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his suffering. Being conformed to his death. He also says they were blameless. They were blameless. And harmless. As if we live in a world that is crooked and perverse. Perverse. They were blameless and harmless toward them. Righteous and blameless, excuse me. We live in a crooked and perverse culture, and getting more so all the time. Since the overturning of Roe by the Supreme Court, there are actually states that are advertising their state as a tourist destination to come to kill a baby. Think about that. There are states within our 50 states that are treating their state like a Disneyland to come to. That's crooked and perverse. That's crooked and perverse, where you advertise, come to our state for death. We live in one of them. Here's one other example, where they hide on search engines pregnancy care centers, so that when somebody has a question about their pregnancy and is looking for help, pregnancy care centers are scrubbed or hidden or so far down that they aren't seen when help is needed. They never see on the search engines, the organizations and individuals that want to walk alongside of them to help them make a decision for life to keep their baby. That's another example of crooked and perverse. Where a culture of death is celebrated, that's where we live right now. In the midst of that, we're called to be holy, righteous, and blameless. It's not easy. Back up here. And he says in verse 11 For you know how, like a father with his children, We exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Something's wrong with the slides here. Let me see where we are. Hmm. Okay, we'll just skip it. I'm just going to close this for right now. Here we go. Verse 11, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Thank you, Luke. A good father not only supports his family by working and teaching his family and being a good example, he must also take time to speak to his family. Paul knew how important it was to teach the new believers the biblical truths that would help them to grow in the Lord. There's a kind of a personal touch to Paul's work in Thessalonica. Verse 12 says, We exhorted each one of you. We exhorted each one of you. I'm sure that Paul was a busy man, yet he still had time for that one-on-one time with people, counseling, discipleship, with the members of that assembly. And as a faithful minister, it's right to proclaim the word each Lord's Day, but spending time with them one-on-one throughout the week is needed also. We need to look no further than the example of Jesus. He was never too busy to speak to individuals, all the way down to little children, even though he preached to huge crowds. This is difficult and demanding, but necessary. So a good preacher is also a good shepherd with a desire to minister to individuals, not just the gathered flock on Sunday. He then said, In verse 11, we encouraged you. We encouraged you. New believers need encouragement. And guess what? Old believers need encouragement. How many of you have been a Christian for more than 25 years? Most of you. How many of you have been a Christian for less than 25 years? A few of you, yeah. Less than 25 years. New believers need encouragement. Old believers do too. New believers can be easily, easily discouraged. They need to be encouraged in the Lord. Sometimes that's a listening ear, maybe a timely text, or maybe even a thoughtfully written note where you actually take the time to get out a card and handwrite something and find an address and put a stamp on it and drive to the post office and mail it. Sometimes it even goes to that length to care for a new believer or somebody in the faith or someone who needs encouragement. Then he says, we exhorted each one of you. That's not to scold or to shame a person. When you exhort somebody, you're not scolding or shaming. It's a call to come alongside to encourage. His aim was to encourage them to go on with the Lord. Keep going on with the Lord. Keep at it. Keep growing. Keep learning. Don't become stagnant in your walk of faith with Jesus. Be a a lifelong learner. About the things of God. Good words for the Thessalonian Christians and good words for us. Keep going in our faith. Be lifelong learners. Learners. Encouragement also has the idea of comfort. Comfort. The idea here being activity. Paul didn't just say words to make them feel better, he called them to do better. To do better. When a father pampers a child and uh, when something goes wrong, he's really not helping that child. Our two youngest grandsons, four and two, four and two, ride balance bikes. We never had balance bikes. What we had was bike with training wheels, and when they took off the training wheels, it became a balance bike, right? That's what happened, and you know... When you learned to ride your bike, if you were older, you probably fell off many times trying to figure out steering and balance and overcoming fear, and the pavement was hard. What good father would pamper or scold a child when they were trying to learn how to ride a bike? Get up! You know, harsh. No, no, no. Encouragement was needed when you were trying to learn how to write it, good job, this is the furthest you've ever gone. And it was like, that far? You can do it, I'm so proud of you. Keep at it. That's what the child needed. That's what you and I needed. We barely remember that back that far, but that's what we needed when we were trying to write it. That's what a new Christian needs. Keep at it. They don't need to be scolded. They need that. Keep at it. You can do it. I'm proud of you. Christian, uh, Christian encouragement is a call for us to do better. And here's the good thing. It's not all on you. you we know don't tell somebody, do better in your Christian walk. It's not, it's not all on you. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit, as was mentioned in the opening, to equip and strengthen you in your walk. A good encourager will remind you often that you're not by yourself. I'm alongside of you, and you have the indwelling Holy Spirit with you. But I the Holy Spirit is there. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 speaks to this so clearly. Therefore, my beloved, Paul writes to the Philippians, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Get after it. Go after it. Work hard in your Christian walk. Don't be lazy. That's what he's saying. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. You're not doing it alone. Praise God, you're not doing it alone. We need to be reminded of that. Finally, he charges them in verse 12, and I'm so glad Greg gave me this verse. He says, I charge you. Paul was testifying to them out of his own experience with the Lord. It's, it's the idea of giving a personal witness of what it happens. He says, I charge you. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that sometimes... Often you go through difficult times in order that you may share that with somebody else when the right time comes up. People don't always want to hear your sob story, but there's a time and a place to be able to say, I can relate to what you're saying. I understand you're hurting. I've not been exactly through what you're going through, but I'm sorry, I've, I've felt similar pain. Thank you for sharing that. You can testify to God's goodness and faithfulness. Paul writes to the Corinthians here, a verse that we're very familiar with. God comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We experience hard things, difficult things, so that we can comfort somebody else in another season of life. I know that we've seen that true in our own life. Sometimes parents or grandparents, especially grandparents, will say to a child, Well, back when I was a kid, and the youngster, especially if they're a teenager, will roll their eyes, and here goes Grandpa again, with a story from yesteryear, but that's an important part of a healthy family life. Examples from personal history can help. The same is true spiritually. As a spiritual father can encourage and help his children in the faith out of out of his own experience with the Lord. I've experienced that, and the Lord has sustained me, and I know the Lord will sustain you. That's the idea. I've experienced something similar. The Lord carried me. I know the Lord will carry you. David writes in Psalm 34:11, come my children and listen to me and I will teach you to fear the Lord. So there's a place for, let me tell you a story that happened in my own life from yesteryear. Some may still roll their eyes, but I think they hear it even if they roll their eyes. Paul had an aim in all of his duties as a faithful minister. There was a caring heart behind every one of those duties. It's expressed in end of verse 12. He says, to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Just like a father wants to be proud of his own children, the Lord wants to get glory through the lives of his children. He wants to get glory in your life and in mine. The Apostle Paul, he tirelessly ministered to these people we can see and we will see in the weeks to come in the church because he was teaching them how to walk. He was teaching them how to walk. Every child who learns how to walk has good examples around them. Moms, dads, brothers, sisters, eventually they go. I know we were all too young to, figure, or to remember this, but I, I can imagine us all going there's an easier way to get around than, than scooching around on a dirty floor. They have examples around them. We've all been in a room where one person holds out their hands to that little one and says, come on, come on, take, take a step, one step, two steps, and you, you know, a little bit. And They learn to walk one and two steps at a time. Paul says, come on, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Come on, come on, you can do it. I think it's an encouraging, it's not a, you need to walk in a, it's a, come on, like that. It's a theme of Paul, Paul's, any. it shows up throughout his letters. If you, you could trace it, it says it here, but Colossians 1, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. He tells the Philippians in Philippians 1.27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or Ephesians 4.1, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. It's a theme through his writing God has called us, brothers and sisters. We're saved by grace. We're part of a kingdom and a glory, it says in verse 12. There's a day coming when we will enter the eternal kingdom and share his glory. That, that fact ought to govern our lives and make us want to please the Lord right now. A prayer as simple as, Lord, I want to please you in everything I do. Lord, I want to help me to please you in everything I do. I want to give every area of my life over to you. That's not always easy. That's hard. So many of us are so busy. A friend of mine that, we went to our church for a while, he doesn't go there anymore, said one of his favorite prayers is, Lord, help. Lord, help. That's a truncated version of, Lord, I want to please you and everything I do. is just, Lord, help. I think he hears that prayer. One or two more thoughts before we finish this morning. In verse 12, the phrase, Who calls you? Who calls you? Uh, in the present, it's in the present tense in the Greek. You can read, Who is continually calling you? We know that God calls us to salvation. Apart from that call, none of us would be able to respond in faith and believe the gospel. We know that, but after we come to faith in Christ, he's continually calling you and I to a life of holiness and obedience. We're continually being called to that. First Peter 1, 15 and 16. Peter writes, "But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, "Be holy, for I holy, for I am holy." You've seen in First Thessalonians one that the church was born right. In chapter 2, we're seeing that the church is being nurtured right. The gospel not only saves us, but also it matures us and sanctifies us. So we can say, just in conclusion, a faithful shepherd with a heart for his people is vital to a growing church. And Paul calls you and I this morning and this week to walk worthy together he points out that to that new church and to us, he says, that's the gospel of God. He says that twice in this. That's the gospel of God. We're called to walk worthy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we read a passage like this, and it's hard not to see the care that Paul had for this church in Thessalonica they loved you and they loved each other and we thank you for the encouragement that comes from reading these words. Thank you for the gift that you give many pastors, not only be preachers of the word, but also shepherds of a flock and we pray that for this church that you would bring this local congregation in your time, in your way and in your will a faithful minister of the gospel, that not only faithfully preaches the word, but loves the flock. Protect this flock, Lord, from wolves that would want to come in and steal and destroy. Protect this flock. Encourage this flock. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.